Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible with you, please do turn to Mark chapter 3 and verse 7. Mark chapter 3 and verse 7. We're going to read through to verse 19. This is what God's word says. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Amen. We thank God for his word. As we come to God's word, let's pray together. Father, we want to come and we want to pray uh, with the psalmist. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. As we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whenever you go to the supermarket, it's not long before you spot the people who are working there, isn't it? Whether they're wearing the greens or the blue or the orange, you spot them so easily because they're wearing that which communicates, I work here. They've got the uniform on. But you don't know anything more about them than that, do you? You don't know what their politics is or what team they support or their views on all kinds of things. How would you ever get to know that from them? Well, you'd have to get to know them. Without that, you wouldn't know uh, those things. But then if you were to get to know them, if you were introduced by a friend or something like that, it would become apparent over time what it was that made them tick. And so it is in the Christian life. If someone sees you in the supermarket, well, then they wouldn't be able to tell just by looking at you one way or another if you were a Christian or not as you peruse the biscuit aisle. An act of kindness, maybe, that might help. But realistically, they'll just think that you're a nice person. And so were someone to get to know you, were you to welcome someone into your home regularly, were you to meet up outside of work with that colleague of yours, were you to intentionally connect with those that the Lord has placed in your sphere of life, whether it's on the school run or those friendships that you've had for decades, they would get to see what it was that made you tick. They would see what makes you who you are. And the Bible works to the assumption that followers of the Lord Jesus will be doing this. They'll be engaged in the world. And as that happens, we'll have reason to give the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. And so we must ask ourselves, therefore, what does a disciple of Jesus really look like? And our passage this morning helps us to answer that. Recently in Mark's Gospel, we've seen the increase in opposition towards Jesus through the religious leaders we saw last time and, and the demonic as well, the demonic opposition in, in the crowds. And these things were coming against Jesus and his ministry. 
And we saw there, there was that large crowd last time that followed Jesus to the lakeside of Galilee. And we saw how we can wrongly respond to Jesus. We can remain in the crowd, or we can simply say, we believe, but that is not enough to stay at a distance, or to say we believe in some kind of God of some sort. No, we have to be clear that our belief is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must believe in him and all that he has done. And this morning in verses 13 to 19, we we see what this looks like. This is kind of the opposite to what we saw last time, because here now we positively see what a disciple of Jesus looks like. What does it look like to have been called by Jesus? What does it look like to follow him? Well, I want us to see three answers to that question this morning in our passage, which I trust will give us real clarity in what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we might reflect on our own lives, that we might question, well, am I really following Jesus this morning? Have I ever come to follow him? Well, the first answer to our question of what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus is this. We are called by Jesus. We are called by Jesus. That's our first point This morning, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you have been called by him. Remember, this is in contrast to all that we saw last time in the crowd. And so in verse 13, we read this. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Jesus calls the ones that he wants, and they come to him. We saw last time the crowd wanting Jesus, and they had their varying reasons for that. But it was mainly for what they could get from Jesus. But now, Jesus calls for the people that he wants. He summons those he wills. This is a really important thing for us to to see here in the language used as Jesus calls his disciples to himself. Disciples don't decide to follow Jesus because they think it's a good idea. As if they're somehow doing Jesus a favour. No, the call of Jesus is the decisive factor above anything and everything else. It means that his call summons those who had no intention of following him. And that is as true today as it was then. We come to Jesus as he calls us. The crowd last time showed us that we won't come to Jesus unless he calls us. And his call is to come into fellowship with him, into a gathering that is determined not by our strength or our ability or our preferences, but by his sovereign, gracious call. So be assured by that, Christian, this morning, if Jesus has called you to himself, then that cannot ever change. You are his forever. You are safe in his hand. And what is so staggering about this is that those who Jesus calls here to follow him, they have absolutely nothing in common. The only thing that they share is that they have been called by the sovereign grace of Jesus. Without this, the community of Jesus Christ cannot exist. And you might remember, we saw back in chapter 1, when Jesus called Simon and Andrew and James and John, that early on in the Gospels, we're seeing the seeds of the early Christian church Being planted, here is the embryo of the church of Jesus Christ, being slowly formed around the centre of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so don't miss that detail. They came to him. 
They came to him. Jesus is the subject of the call. He calls them to him. He doesn't call them to the scriptures. He doesn't call them to a system. He doesn't call them to an institution. He calls them to himself, the one who is goodness personified. There is none who are equal to Jesus. There is none who can surpass him. And these 12 who Jesus calls, they respond to that call in coming to him. And so Jesus appoints these 12. And we're told their names in verses 16 to 19. Again, showing us that we're known personally to the Lord. We're not just numbers in a system. We're not just uh, customers who never see the manager. No, we are known by name. And that's why we're given the 12 names of the disciples here. And I should say that this is not a random number that Jesus has chosen. If over a cup of tea later I was to ask you how many members of parliament do we have who sit in Westminster or more locally how many councillors uh, sit down there in the in the bay uh, to represent the city and county of Swansea and County Hall well you might not know the answer and I'm not sure I would either or how many of us as UK residents could say how many counties are there in the UK these are numbers these are questions they don't carry too much significance really but that's not the case with the 12. Every Jew knew that there had been 12 tribes in Israel. They related more or less to the 12 sons of Jacob, one of the founding fathers of Israel, and you can read all about that in the latter half of Genesis. These tribes, they didn't really exist by the days of Jesus. Ten of the tribes had been lost about seven centuries before when the Assyrians invaded and they took them off into exile. So there was some heritage still, but the tribes didn't really exist in the same way that they used to. But the prophets had spoken of a, of a restoration that would come. And many Jews were longing for this restoration. They believed a time was coming when God would turn things around and restore them into a great nation again. So when Jesus comes and calls 12 of his followers apart from the crowd and gave them a special status and commissioned them, not one onlooker could miss the significance of what Jesus was doing here. This speaks louder than words that he isn't here simply to heal or to renew, but to bring restoration at every level. Jesus is creating his new people also with 12 founding fathers. Here is the church of Jesus Christ. Here is the fulfillment of all that has come before Christ in the Old Testament. And it is quite the bunch of men that he calls. They're not clones. They're not all from the same background, with the same likes or dislikes. As a matter of fact, it must have been quite the job keeping this group on the same track. Because look at some of the names we've got here. You had Simon. He was also called Peter. That means rock because Jesus goes on later in the Gospels to say he's going to be the foundation of, of the church one day. But it's going to be a while until he lives up to this name because at this point he was probably one of the most unstable people that you could have ever met. Then you had James and John known as sons of thunder, hotheads. They could make an argument out of thin air. There was Simon the Zealot. He was a strong nationalist. Forty years after uh, this period, the Zealots would lead a revolt against the Romans. They became an extremist group. And though that was after Simon's day, that kind of tells us where his sympathies were lying. And he now finds himself in the same group as, as Levi. Or, or here he's called Matthew. We've met him already in chapter 2. A former tax collector viewed uh, as a traitor, uh, as a Roman sympathizer by the locals. And naturally those two would not have got on. But here they are in the same group. 
of people, the same 12 that Jesus has called to be his disciples. They are such a mix of people. They were all known by name and they were all called by Jesus to follow him. And through him, he's going to send ripples right throughout the world, the effects of which you and I are still feeling today. Beyond their names, we don't know about most of them, really. We'll meet Peter and James and John again. Andrew, Philip, Thomas and Judas, once or twice they're mentioned. But as for the others, we don't hear anything more. And that, I think, is kind of helpful. Because though we don't know specifically what they did for the cause of the gospel, what it does is that it encourages you and I this morning that they stand as silent witnesses to the truth that the very existence of the church, the fact there is even a Christian church still around 2,000 years later, is because of the labours of those who, for the most part, are either unnamed or are certainly unknown. And that's true for us this morning, isn't it, brothers and sisters? We all come from different backgrounds, different upbringings. We all have different likes and different dislikes and different preferences. We're quite the bunch of people, really, in many ways. You would not naturally put us all together in one room. And we certainly aren't big names in the eyes of the world. There might not be much that's special about us, but that, this is the way that the Lord goes about his work. He calls ordinary people from all walks of life to himself that he might use us mightily for his purposes. It's a great encouragement for us, isn't it? This is how God works. He calls people like you. And like me, to himself, and he uses us for his kingdom purposes. It's striking that all of the twelve here, they were not from the religious establishment. They had no leadership credentials. There's nothing about this group from a human perspective that suggests that they're going to do well in their mission to the world. But their success or their abilities aren't what this is all reliant on. No, what is most important is that they have been called by Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, you have been called by God this morning. And because of that, he'll never let you go. And he has something for you still to do. He has something for us to do still in this town of Gesina. As disciples of Jesus, we've been called by him. And I wonder, friend, this morning, if the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who you're following. Is the Lord Jesus Christ even this morning calling you to follow him? You're convicted that you know as you're hearing this, you're not his disciple. But he's calling you now to come to him. He's drawing you to himself. And friend, I want to say to you, come to Jesus Christ, won't you? Come to him. Begin a new life of faith in him this morning. Come to Jesus as he's calling you now through his words and by his spirit to be your disciple. But if you have come to Jesus and known him call you to himself, well then what? Uh, what? What next? Well, we go on now and see what Jesus appointed the twelve for. And what was true for those first disciples is also true for us now, 2,000 years later. And so secondly, this morning, as we answer this question, what does a disciple of Jesus look like? I want us to see, secondly, that we are to be with Jesus. We are to be with Jesus I wonder if you noticed that as we read earlier in verse 14. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. Jesus wanted these 12 men to be with him. Now on one level this was a very human thing. Jesus, yes, is fully God, but he is also fully man. And so it was instinctive to desire companionship. He rejoiced in their friendship as human beings. 
We were made for friendship. We were made to, to be in community. And that is what Jesus is forming here. He would have loved them. He would have taught them. He would have grieved over their faults and their failings. But on the other hand, he wanted them to, to be with him for their sake. Also, it was only through being with him that this newly formed group of disciples would be able to fulfill the task of being a faithful witness to him through the rest of their days. Only in being with him would they be able to fully take in and grasp something of, of the powerful influence of his life and ministry, of which they would go on to speak of and write of as witnesses down through the centuries. Only in being with him will they learn all that he has to teach them as they see up close who he is and how he lives so consistently. Being a disciple of Jesus always, always, always starts here. In the words of one writer, the simple phrase, to be with him, has atomic significance in the Gospel of Mark. Discipleship is a relationship before it is a task. A who before a what. And this is vitally important that we have this clear in our understanding. Being a disciple of Jesus is more about who you are than what you do. We can sometimes mix that up and get it the wrong way round and think that what we do is most important. And don't misunderstand me, what we do is very important indeed. And we'll see the Lord Jesus send his disciples with something to do in a little moment. But it doesn't start there. It doesn't start there. You don't start off as a disciple of Jesus through your doing. You start off as a disciple of Jesus because you have been called to him and you have been with him. Then and only then can we go and do, as we'll see shortly. That is the pattern that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to these first disciples. This is so crucial because, of course, without Jesus there is no Christianity. There is no Christian faith without him. Being a disciple is pointless if there is nobody worth following. And so we can illustrate it in these terms when we read the opening chapters of Genesis. Genesis 3 shows us very clearly the very essence of sin itself is substituting a false God for the one true living God. Sin is when we put other things in the place of God, whatever they might be. Essentially, when he is no longer number one in our lives, then we are sinning against him because he is not having the honor that he deserves. And so in light of that fundamental truth of the opening chapters of Genesis, being with Jesus becomes the way, the one and only way of forsaking human idols and honoring the one true living God as he deserves. In so doing, we find the purpose for which you and I were made. We recover something of the image of God in our lives as set out there at the end of Genesis 1 as we spend more and more time with Jesus. That, brothers and sisters, is what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be with him. That is, that, this is the reason that the Lord Jesus called these 12 men to follow him, to be with him. To be with Jesus, again, one writer says, is the most profound mystery of discipleship. From now on, his person and his work determine the existence of the twelve. Being with Jesus is what being a Christian is really all about. It is what following Jesus means. It is where true discipleship begins, by being with Jesus. 
Think of these 12 in particular. In the years to come, people would be absolutely astounded by their wisdom. They would be astonished at their power. They would be stunned by their knowledge of the scriptures. Even though they hadn't been to Bible college, they never did a theology course, they had little in the way of academic qualifications. But we find recorded for us in the book of Acts that this really was the effect of their time spent with the Lord Jesus. It was obvious there was something about these men that they really did know the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Peter and John, they'd been before the Sanhedrin, the ruling authorities of the day, because the religious leaders there, they, they weren't happy that they had healed uh, a lame beggar. And then they go on to explain that all that had happened there was not because they had special powers, but because the Lord Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And it was because he was alive and was present with them that they were able to heal this man. That They said that they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So Peter and John, they're arrested, they're put in prison, brought before these skeptical religious leaders and Peter filled with the Holy Spirit defends what has happened that it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed Peter makes his case from the scriptures and with wisdom and here's the point I'm seeking to highlight listen to the response of those listening when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. There it is. These men had been with Jesus. That's exactly it, isn't it? They had been with Jesus. Jesus had called them to be with him. And years later, it was evident to others that they really had been with him. That, in some sense, was the great secret, if you like, of their lives. They had been with Jesus. And that was what made them the people that they were. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his wonderful work was what made those first disciples what they were. And it is the same for us. This morning, through the scriptures and by the spirit of Christ, it is still possible to be with Jesus. This is the most important aspect of discipleship. Because without Jesus, there's nobody to follow and there's no Christian faith. And so that should mean, brothers and sisters, that we should take careful note here of the effects of, of such communion with our Lord Jesus. It is noticeable. It is tangible. And we should long for that in our own lives. Maybe you can think of someone who, who's like this. Maybe when you were growing up, there was that older, wiser, mature Christian brother or sister. And you could just tell that they were one with the Lord. It, it just kind of like oozed out of them. There was something different about them. They had spent real time with the Lord Jesus. They had been with him. And you were so struck by that. And those people come to your minds now as I, as I say these things. Well, the encouragement for all of us this morning is that such experience is not confined to the past or only to those who've been a Christian for so many decades or to those who've been called to some kind of ministry position. No, we've, we're seeing, aren't we, this is nothing to do with intellect or ability. Uh, people thought that the apostles were unschooled. 
But they couldn't have been more wrong, could they? Because they had been scholars in the best of schools in all of the world. The school of the Lord Jesus Christ, what a teacher he was. The supreme example of wisdom and mercy and holiness and grace embodied in front of them. God in the flesh, meeting their needs, encouraging them, shaping them, refining them through daily communion with him. And so it leaves us asking the question for us to ponder on, doesn't it? Do I spend time with Jesus? Christian, please don't hear me saying that you have to spend so many minutes or so many hours over the course of a week or a month in order to maintain your standing before him, reading the Bible and things like that. Your your salvation is nothing to do with you ultimately. You are saved by grace. You are kept. You are sustained by grace because he is the one who has graciously called you. But that said, though your union with Jesus Christ by faith can't ever be broken once you've come to trust in him, your communion, the closeness of your walk with the Lord Jesus, that can falter. Your walk can drift. Your closeness with your Savior can end up not being what it once was. We've all known times like that in our lives, I'm sure, me included, and maybe this morning you are in a time like that. You're in a season in your life where you feel that way. You can't really say that you've been with Jesus much lately for whatever reason. But you don't need to come to God this morning with your your reasons for that. You don't need to do that. You just need to simply come to Jesus this morning. You just need to come back to him full of thankfulness that you who were once called out of darkness now live in light. You know the Lord Jesus You know the the new life in him because of your sins forgiven. You've been restored to the purpose for which you were made. You just need to come back to him this morning, believing that that is true for you, that you will come in repentance and in faith, turning from your waywardness and the ways that you've gone in your self-centeredness and self-sufficient outlook, and you lean wholly upon the Lord. Asking him to forgive you this morning for your coldness and for your complacency. Asking him to renew that desire to be with him, to be closer with him this week than you were the last. I wonder, will you do that this morning? Brothers and sisters, will you come back to the Lord? Will you commit yourself to him as we've sung that you might walk closer uh, with him this week? Will you seek the help and the strength of the Holy Spirit uh, to go on with your God, that you might enjoy deeper fellowship with him? And so that people around you, as with the apostles in Acts 4, people around you might be able to say, ah, you've been with Jesus. That people might say, do you know such and such? There's something about them. And it can only be this, they've been with Jesus. Oh, that the Lord would do that. He'd be pleased to do that in us and through us for his glory. So what does a disciple of Jesus look like? We're called by Jesus. We're to be with Jesus. And then thirdly and finally this morning, we are sent by Jesus. We are sent by Jesus. And remember the order that we're seeing this morning is vital. Jesus calls us to be with him and then... Having been with him, we are sent out by him. Again, look at verse 14. He appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Jesus sends out his disciples and he sends them out to do two things there. The first is to preach. And this shouldn't surprise us by now because if the greatest priority of Jesus' ministry was to preach, well then, no wonder he wants his disciples to go and do 
likewise. We'll see them do that in chapter 6. And they begin to do that there. But also within this, there's this longer term view to this sending. Because these men would continue the ministry that Jesus is beginning after his death and resurrection and ascension. They would continue to proclaim the kingdom of God through the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They would be obedient to his command to go out into all the world to make disciples of all nations as they preach this good news. Now, these men were apostles. Uh, They were with the physical Lord Jesus. And so in one sense, their preaching was utterly unique. They possessed a unique role in the history of Christ's kingdom as they gave the word of God found in the New Testament to the church. There are no apostles now because nobody fulfills this criteria of having been with the physical risen Lord Jesus. But that said, this is a pattern. In all of Jesus' dealings with every disciple, which he continues to use, and it is this. He calls us to be with him in order to send us out to others, to bring them the good news of the gospel concerning himself. The gospel is something we can, all of us, communicate. It is something that can be understood in common, everyday language. The twelve would have proclaimed not what they thought or what they felt, but what they had seen and what they had heard. What was tangible? What was true? And as a group, they would have covered more ground than one person ever could have, as they made Jesus known through their preaching and brought others to know him too. And so it is for us, brothers and sisters, this morning. We don't proclaim what we think or what we feel. We proclaim what is tangible and what is true, what was seen and heard by those first eyewitnesses, by the twelve. And we do that in everyday language. We communicate simply in language that can be understood. And because between us, we can do something which on our own we couldn't do. We can cover more ground than just one of us ever could. Because the Lord has put us in the unique street we live on. In the unique workplace we find ourselves in. In the unique community groups that we're involved with through the week. We have that privilege of telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and all that he means to us and the difference that he makes. And so think of it like this. If each of us here this morning, if we committed over the coming weeks to to pray, to pray for one opportunity this month to tell people about Jesus, to tell others about all that he means to us, and to invite them maybe to a, a service over Easter, on Palm Sunday morning maybe, we would, if we did that and committed to that and the Lord was kind to us and heard our prayers, we could have 40 friends with us over Easter. Wouldn't that be great? To have 40 friends here. We'd double in number maybe. And we'd have people who would never heard about the Lord Jesus before having the chance to hear the good news about Jesus. When will you commit to do that, brothers and sisters, the next few weeks? Will you think of who you can be praying for? An opportunity to speak to them about the Lord Jesus in the run-up to Easter, to invite them to come and meet the church family here. Jesus sends us out, maybe not to preach in the way that I am now, but he does send all of us to make him known. That is what it is, to, to be a disciple of Jesus. But there's another aspect to being sent by Jesus here, the second thing in verse 15, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. To have authority. The apostles were sent to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now this might raise all kinds of questions uh, for us. We can uh, chat about those over a cup of tea later. But the headline 
is just as Jesus was able to cast out demons, so too would the disciples in order to show that the kingdom of God really has arrived. Now again, we see that later on in Mark 6, but it must be said that not all of Jesus' followers in the New Testament in those days had this gift of casting out demons. That was limited to a few, it was something that was exercised by a small number, and so we must not make the mistake of assuming that this exercising of demons is a part of every Christian's experience in New Testament times, whether that be the 1st or 21st century. Remember what we've seen so far in Mark's Gospel, that demons are prominent in opposing Jesus' ministry. Why is that? Because his unique mission involves confronting Satan and defeating him. And in Christ's coming to earth to accomplish the great rescue plan of God, it resulted in demonic opposition seen on a scale not before or since. And yet, we've got to counterbalance that by saying, as we have before, that demons still do exist. The reality of dark and evil forces in this world cannot be ignored. It cannot be rejected. And so I think we can say, we don't expect to meet them very often, but it shouldn't shock us if we ever do. And as Christians, we belong to the church of Jesus Christ, who is head over us. And we too have the authority of him of him over spiritual powers of darkness. In him we have the victory, even when Satan himself tempts us to to despair or tells us we are useless and no good. The fact Jesus says this as he sends out his disciples is significant because it marks for us so clearly the permanent hostility that exists between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness. As we are sent by Jesus, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. Remember that the whole of Jesus' ministry had a focus on destroying the works of the devil. He did not come to wrestle with flesh and blood, but with powers of darkness, as Paul outlines for us in Ephesians 6. That was true for the apostles then, and it is true for us as well this morning. As followers of Jesus, we must not ignore the spiritual battle that we are involved in. As Jesus sends his first disciples out, we see the clear mark of spiritual warfare. There will be opposition, and yet Jesus, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the one with all authority, grants authority to the twelve to drive out demons. They had a foundational ministry. And in the time since, we have no authority in ourselves as a church. I have no authority in myself. As a pastor, we simply stand on the authority of Christ and his word. And it is as we proclaim that authority of him that we fulfill what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And so you and I don't need to be driving out demons or performing miracles to establish authority. We've got no authority in ourselves anyway. The responsibility for all of us is to tell the world of Jesus That is to be our priority based on the authority of Christ and his word. And so although the disciples' position was unique, there is a sense in which all of us are, through faith in Christ, we're under his lordship, and so we have authority because of him. We have the resources in him to live the Christian life. We have the victory in him. We have the power to overcome opposition and temptation. And brothers and sisters, in a nutshell, this is what it all looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. We're called by Jesus to be with Jesus. We're sent by Jesus. We have come to him. We walk with him. We are sent to tell others of him. 
and his goodness and his greatness. We are given authority, not because of anything superior in us, but because of everything that is supreme in him. What we have to say, what I have to say, it's not from me, it's not from us, but it's of him. And it is on the authority of the word of God that we can fight the good fight of faith this week. We can head out into the week to come, whatever it might have for us, into the spiritual battle of the Christian life with confidence. Knowing that we are sent by the one who has called us to himself in sovereign grace and sovereign love. And so keep looking to Jesus this week, won't you? We need that reminder time and time again. Fix your eyes on him. Keep following him this week. Spend time with him. Spend time with him. Be with him. Tell others of him. Trust in him. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, may we make it our priority this week to be a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for calling us to follow you in your grace and mercy. Thank you that we are secure in you forever. Thank you for the call of your word this morning to prioritize being with you, to walk closely with you, that we might go and tell of you in all your wonder and majesty. We are weak, Lord, and you are mighty. And so we pray for your help to follow you this week as we ask it in your name. Amen.